is in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 13 through 17. So Moses has seen the burning bush. God has spoken to him from it. He recognizes that he's on holy ground here. And in verse 13 it says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Dear Lord, we thank you that your word can be trusted. And we thank you for that word. We thank you for this time that we have here to study your word and to learn more about you. And Lord, as we come here to hear from you, we pray that you would speak through Paul, that you would open our ears and our brains and our hearts up to the things of you and that you would not just teach us more about you, but that you would change our lives, Lord, by this deeper knowledge that we have of you. That as we grow to know you greater, that it would change our lives, that it would be noticeable in the community that we live in, in our families, and that you would use us for your glory. But right now, give us ears to hear as you use Pastor Paul for your glory. And do use him, Lord, and speak through him. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, good morning again. Sorry, I was uh, detained. Uh, did, you, uh, did you actually read this? Okay, I'm going to read this. Kurt gave me this this morning. And uh, it's from his devotional. So, it's a Mother's Day reading. A Mother's Day devotional. Uh, the text is Proverbs 31:31. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. <clears throat> and it says this. The first nine verses of Proverbs 31 are the words of King Lemuel. He is sharing divinely inspired words of wisdom taught to him by his mother. It is not known who wrote the remaining verses of Proverbs 31, which comprise a poem describing the qualities that a godly mother models for her daughter and teaches her son to look for in a wife. 
A God-fearing woman passes her wisdom on to her children. Here is a summary of the characteristics from Proverbs 31 that a godly woman should possess. Trustworthiness, respect for her husband, a good work ethic, physical strength, confidence, financial well-being, generosity, preparedness, and proper attire. She is someone with no worries and who speaks wisdom and teaches kindness. A woman may see this as an impossible list. A man too. But the list is not the point. God helps a woman of faith become all he has called her to be. He gives her faith to trust in his son for forgiveness for the time she fails. God never runs out of work for the woman of faith, and he gives her the strength to keep going. This is why a faithful woman is to be praised. All she does points to Christ. So happy Mother's Day, all you mothers here this is uh, this morning. And uh, let's turn, shall we, to uh, our text in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Last week, we were looking at the calling of Moses at the burning bush and saw that even though um, the way things looked, as far as Moses was concerned, he was now on the outside, he was in Midian, he was tending sheep, and uh, that former life was all behind him. For 40 years he tended sheep. So he could be forgiven for um, thinking that, uh, you know, there's all the, the, the uh, problems of Israel in Egypt were no longer his problems. But God appears to him, as we saw last week, and God gives him a commission. The commission was, go back into Egypt and lead my people out because you are the chosen instrument uh, to do that, God being with you. And so this is the follow-up to that. Moses is somewhat concerned about going back into the most mighty empire of the ancient world and uh, leading a few million people out of it, particularly the ones who were the slaves, which is basically what the Egyptians had become under this pharaoh. And this pharaoh, therefore, was not about to just let them go. So this was quite a tall order, wasn't it, that he was um, being commissioned to do. God, though, gave him a sign or said this will be a sign. But the sign was not a sign that um, God was going to actually do it. The sign was to be given to Moses after God had done it. The sign was, you will bring them here to Horeb. Do you see? That would be the sign. So it's like, well, you know, if it had been me, I'd have preferred a sign before that too. Now, of course, God being gracious 
does give signs, and many great signs, of course, but none were promised at this particular time but the fact that Israel would come with Moses back to this very place. So the narrative continues in verse 13, where Moses speaks to God and says, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So there's a few things here that we need to look at. First of all, Moses has been out of the picture for 40 years, which means the whole generation of people in Israel have have, uh, lived, died, and forgotten about who Moses was, although some of them would remember. But his former life in the court of the Pharaoh wouldn't be known for a lot of um, of the Israelites. So he was going to go in as a somewhat of a stranger. There would be whispers about him. Some people will say, oh, yeah, this is the person who was brought up in Pharaoh's court, and there will be, you know, gossip about him and so on that would spread, for sure. But still, he's going in as an outsider, isn't he? He's going in there as somewhat of an unknown. Who is he to go in there and do this errand? But further, in verse 13, he wants to know who the God is. You see, God just announces himself and says, I'm the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, Moses wants a little bit more than that. Why, why does he want more than that? Well, he's been raised in Egypt. And in Egypt, all of the gods have got names. These gods were very powerful gods. I believe that uh, many of them were actually demonic in nature. And uh, um, certain ones like Osiris and Seth and Anubis, these were very powerful gods and were lots of myth and, and uh, superstition about these gods and about their power. They were feared. So the Israelites would have grown up surrounded by these gods, about talk about these gods and about statues of these gods and paintings of these gods. They would know about um, these powerful gods and they would somewhat, even if they didn't fully believe in them and enter into that religion, they would certainly be fearful So for Moses to come in with an unnamed God in the midst of this profusion of very powerful named gods was to put him somewhat at a disadvantage, at least from his point of view. So he wants to know God's name. And the answer that he gets is very instructive, even though it might not seem to be exactly what we might want. 
Now, by the way, we know that the name that God, and we, we find this out in Exodus, the name, the name that God uh, refers to him by, himself by in the Old Testament is variously uh, uh, pronounced Jehovah or Yahweh or Yahweh, something like that, yes? And that word, we don't exactly know how to pronounce it because when you look at the word in Hebrew, you only have the consonants in Hebrew. You don't have the vowels in Hebrew, okay? So if you look at Hebrew, all you have is consonants. And you're supposed to, uh, to know how to pronounce it by the way the consonants are set out. Um, in later Hebrew texts, this is a bit of an uh, academic lesson for you, just for a minute. In later Hebrew texts, those consonants are pointed. What that means is that you have certain points, like you have three dots, for example. You have a dot over the... Uh, uh, over one of the letters or you'll have a dash underneath another one. You'll have just these little small uh, things which uh, tell you basically whether or how to open your mouth. Okay? That's what they're for. How to open your mouth. You know, is it E, ah, that kind of thing. Yes? And that helps you to pronounce the word. Okay? But uh, we don't know how they pronounced it, so uh, the best guess is Yahweh or, you know, you can have Jehovah as well. Okay, back to the text here. Moses knew that word, that name, and that's important because, you know, that was how God appeared to Abraham. But the full uh, value of that name was not known to Abraham. What that name meant was not revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The name Yahweh is from a verb, Hayah, which means to be. To be. Now are you getting um, the connection with this text? <clears throat> What is your name? And God responds to Moses by revealing that he is the I am. Excuse me. Um, Look here at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Or the King James, I think, has it better. I am that I am. I think that's, that's better. The problem with I am who I am is uh, that begs the question, well, who are you then? Do you see? That's why I am that I am, I think, is better because it puts the stress again on the I am. Okay? <clears throat> but whichever one we choose there, This is the answer that God gives. And what kind of an answer is it? Moses wants to know the name of God, and God's response is, I am. 
Well, what's in a name? To us, we name things because we like the sound of them very often. We, um, when Gina and I named our children, apart from the last one, Anne, thank you, We uh, we just like the sound of the names. I mean, there's not many names you can put with Hennebury, quite honestly. That's for one thing. But um, <clears throat> uh, Gina liked the name Anne. And uh, I put the name Charis on the front of that name because it's the Greek word for gift. Okay, the basic meaning is gift. Okay? <clears throat> And that was to remind us that God had gifted us um, this young child, and she has been a gift. But we don't usually think about what these names mean, yes? That's not the way that people thought in the ancient world. In the ancient world, to ask a name was also to ask something about your character or, or something uh, of your characteristics, okay? And we even see this in certain places in the Old Testament. Do you remember uh, the story about Nabal in the Old Testament where he wouldn't help David's men, okay? He turned them away. And the word, Na- the word Nabal or Nabal means fool, okay? And... Um, <clears throat> Abigail, his wife, comes to David, who's just about to ride in there and slaughter everybody, and says, uh, you know, my, my husband is well-named. He's, he's uh, named Nabal, and he's a fool. And David would have completely understood that. You see, that would have had real impact on him. We wouldn't even think about doing that, would we? We wouldn't think about, yeah, my, my, you know, my husband's name or my wife's name is this and it means this, therefore. But in the Old Testament, that is how they thought. So what is your name? My name is I am. Tell them I am. That was therefore significant. What is the significance of claiming to be I am. <clears throat> All right. When, this is the first question I might ask about that name, when is God the I am? Is he the I am just then when he's talking to Moses? Well, obviously not because he says, go and tell them when you get there, go and tell them that I am has sent me. So that means that God is the I am who is speaking to Moses then, and he's still the I am whom Moses is going to tell the Israelites about once he gets to Egypt. So what is the significance then of this name I am? Again, it's from that verb to be, hayah, and it means that God always is. That's the idea. God always is. 
He always has been. He always will be. He is the ever-present, the eternal I am. That's all that can be said about him as far as the most significant thing about his name. But there's something else about that name that's also equally important. Because the I am is behind everything else. Everything else that we see in the world, whether it's other human beings, whether it's animals, whether it's trees, whether it is uh, um, things in the sky, clouds, whatever, these things, they may last a long time, much longer than us, but they are not eternal. They have been brought into being, and they will go out of being. Behind them, behind their existence, behind their reason for being here, is the I am. Do you see that? So God is not just the ever-present one, but he's the one who is behind everything else that is. And I'm sorry if this is sounding somewhat philosophical, um, but it's important that you understand the thrust of this self-naming of God. Now let's put it in more uh, clear or understandable terms. God is the reason you're here. God is the reason the stars are there. God is the reason the sun's in the sky. God is the reason that the grass grows, that the birds sing. God is the reason for everything. Everything that exists, exists because of God. God gives it life. God gives it breath. God gives it substance. God gives it shape. A tree is a tree because God designed it that way. It grows to a certain height. It uh, produces certain fruit or flowers because that's the way God has designed it and planned it and that therefore is the purpose that it serves. God has designed you and I in his image. An incredible privilege. An incredible privilege to be a human being. And therefore you have a purpose that you are designed for. Now he hasn't designed just uh, production line robots or automatons so that we all do exactly the same thing. You know, apple trees produce apples and Banana trees produce bananas and daffodils produce daffodil flowers and, and so on. Human beings, they can do all kinds of different things and they have personalities that are meant to have a positive impact and interplay with other human personalities and with the rest of the creation that God has made as expressions of the glory of God who is their creator. So behind us and our reason for being here is God 
the great I am. In this context, Moses being commissioned to go into a hostile territory and bring out God's people. Who should I say? We've got these powerful gods there in Egypt. Who should I say is the God who has sent me, the outside God? I am. The one who, even if, even these idolaters in Egypt, even these people that, that worship Anubis and Seth and the rest of them, these people couldn't do that. These gods that are no gods wouldn't even be named if it wasn't for the existence of the God who sends Moses into Egypt. We live in a fallen world. And sometimes we don't think about that like we should think about that. I remember that um, there was an interview with the apologist Francis Schaeffer many years ago before he died. He had uh, brain cancer. And he was interviewed and uh, he says, so what do you, he was asked, what do you think of you serving God and giving your life in the service of God, and you've got this brain cancer. I mean, what's all that about? And his answer was simple. He says, I take the fall seriously. He's got brain cancer, had brain cancer, and died of brain cancer because of the fall. Because we live in that kind of world, a very fallen world, an evil world. Evil, certainly because of the presence of Satan and demonic forces. Evil because of human beings and the wickedness of their hearts. But also evil because of natural evils. Earthquakes and floods and uh, volcanic eruptions and diseases and insects. Mosquitoes biting you all the time when you just want to enjoy the sunshine. That's the world we live in. That's not right. Okay? It's not, it could be better, yes? (laughs) I can imagine a much better world than a world where you're getting bitten to death while you're just trying to enjoy a cup of tea out in the sunshine, yes? So this is the world that we live in. And in that world, there are human beings that worship false gods. Sometimes they're the gods of Egypt. Sometimes they're the gods of Rome and Greece. Sometimes they're the gods of Babylon. They're all the same bunch, actually. And they're all demons. Sometimes it's the God of materialism. Sometimes it's the God of science or scientism. Sometimes, especially nowadays, it's the God of self, you know. This is the world full of these gods. 
And then also, of course, there is Satan. Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, who is a very active, malevolent force, a deceiver, a murderer, a schemer. And he has millions of demons under his power. It's the world that we live in. Who upholds it all? I mean, does it just exist? Is God kind of uh, waiting in some cosmic lounge chair for a few million years until we all self-destruct? That everything runs down? We mustn't think about the world in that way. Listen, you can't take your next breath unless the power of God upholds you. Satan cannot do a thing unless the power of God permits him to do it. Remember in Job, Satan comes up with the sons of God, the angels there, and he's asked, what what are you doing? He says, well, I'm going to and fro in the earth and creating havoc and mayhem wherever I go. And God doesn't say, okay, well, you pack that in for a start. Or are you going to go to hell? No, Satan's still loose. He's still doing this. He still goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. He's still deceiving the the nations. And he's still deceiving Christians. How can he do that? By the permission of the I am who upholds all things in this fallen world. So if you want to know what, how to think about God, if you want to know what distinguishes the God of the Bible from all of the other false gods, it is the fact that these false gods couldn't exist. They couldn't be worshipped if the true God was not upholding this fallen world. Of course he's upholding it. I mean, he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, isn't he? The book of Hebrews says that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. All of this is what is contained in the name of God, I am who I am. I am that I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, verse 14, I am has sent me, Moses, to you, Israel. Well, if the I am has sent Moses to Israel, then Israel is going to come out of Egypt. And Moses even though he's one man and he bleeds like men and he dies like men die and he feels pain and and, uh, 
fatigue and frustration like men do, he's going to be enough if the I am is behind him to do this job. God is the eternal I am. There's there's one other thing that's involved in this name, though, before we get to the third point. What kind of a God is he? What kind of an I am is he? If he always exists, That would be a horrible thing if he was changeable. So in this self-naming of God, this I am is this notion of the fact that he does not change. God is not moody. The other gods were, by the way. You upset them, got them in a mood, okay? They'd zap you, as it was believed. They had lustless like we did. They got hungry like we did. The idea of sacrifices because the gods get hungry. They needed the worship of uh, people in order to get power from them. This was the idea here. God is the I am. He doesn't need anything. He's the power behind everything. He's the reason for everything. And God does not change. In the book of Malachi, God puts it this way. He says, uh, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Backsliding Israel right at the end of the Old Testament They're in covenant with God. Their works and their piety are non-existent, basically, as far as a nation is concerned. Yeah. If it wasn't for the faithfulness and the goodness and the unchangeability of God and his oath, Israel would have been wiped off the map. And Israel today wouldn't exist. But because God is unchangeable and unchangeably good, Israel exists. Because God is your God, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that God and his goodness will always be your God and he will always be good to you. He will never be bad and evil towards you. He will never be mean towards you. Sometimes we think that God's being mean because of circumstances, don't we? But actually we need to tell ourselves this is not God being mean. Because God cannot be mean. God cannot lie. God cannot uh, sin. The God who is the I am is always perfectly good. He's always perfectly love. In fact, as John tells us in 1 John, God is love, which means that he's eternal love. There's a a book that I'm reading. I'm going to get to the third point in just a second. It's not going to take me long, okay? Uh, There's a book that I'm reading 
It's called divine love theory. Okay? I don't recommend it to you because it's philosophical. But I was sent it and I'm supposed to review it. But I'm actually enjoying reading the book. Because what the author is doing, it's a philosophical book, but what he's doing is he's saying that, that human morality and ethics, okay, how we should live, is based ultimately on the communion of love between the three persons of the Trinity. That eternal bond, that eternal commitment of love and truth that there is in the persons of, Trinity, of the Trinity. And we, if we've, if we've trusted in Jesus, have been invited into that loving relationship. God's not going to change for us. We will be changed by coming to him. And he doesn't change. Tell them I am has sent you. That's enough. Continuing here quickly. Moreover, verse 15, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. Do you notice in verse 16 and in verse 15, we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, think Israel. Okay, think Israel and the covenant that God made to Israel, the Jews, to always be a nation before him. And also to be given a land. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites and all the other rites to a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a poetic description of a place of abundance, not of, you know, the kind of gruel that I'm sure they were being fed in Egypt, although they did yearn for those things once they got out into the wilderness. But God was going to bring them into a place of abundance and pleasantness. Uh, be quite honest with you, if... Um, if I'd have heard Moses then say, you know, we're going to go to a land of milk and honey, I would have said, well, I don't like either. So it wouldn't have been very attractive to me. But, and olives either, I'm not really into those. But, um, but you, the idea is this, this, this uh, pleasant land where you grow these kinds of foods. What is the application? The application to us is that God sees our affliction. God sees our trouble. He sees our struggle. He sees the things that come against us that maybe we cause, 
and maybe we don't cause, but they come against us anyway. This is life. This is the, the path through time that we take. And it's strewn with all kinds of obstacles. Yes, there are joys thrown in and there are good times thrown in. Thank God for those. But life is tough. God sees your affliction and God has visited you. And God is going to bring you out of this affliction. The I am. He's going to bring you out of your struggle, your anxiety, your worry into a land which has got better things than milk and honey. Chocolate, yes. Lots of chocolate there. And, but the glories that we have been invited into. Can you imagine here? Can you imagine what glories the I am, the ever-present I, ha- I am has prepared for us and wants us to be part of? No, you can't. But what you can do, and what I can do, is that we can believe in this God. Can't we? We can believe that his promises towards us, that his love towards us is unchangeable. If we have Jesus Christ, we have that love. Okay? We have that presence. We have that promise. We have that future. And we, like Moses, may be very weak and, uh, you know, wondering how on earth we're going to get through, but God is with us. Who is He? What is His name? His name is the great I am. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, pray that you would remind us, because we're so forgetful, of who you are. You're no small God. You are the God who sees everything, who knows everything, who counts all of the hairs on our heads, who counts all of our tears who walks through us, who wants us to cast our burdens upon you, who wants us to depend upon you. And Lord, your shoulders are more than big enough for the whole of creation to depend upon you. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We ask, Father, that you would be our strength. In Jesus' name.